go. Okay, I'll thank you guys again for coming out. A um, little bit of a cloudy, wet day, but I'm glad you guys are here. I'm excited. Um, today we are beginning a new uh, series. We've been through the book of 1 Corinthians for the last nine months. Um, it's really good to jump into something new, something fresh. We're going to be in a new series um, over the summer months. I think today on this cloudy day, that means it's officially summer here at Park RP. Um, and the series we're going to be jumping into is going to be called um, Great Stories. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at great stories in the Bible, particularly great stories found in the Old Testament. I don't know if you know this, but 23% of the Bible is made up of prose, letters, dialogues, discourses that are between people. 33% of the Bible is made up of poetry, poems, uh, songs, psalms, and then 43, so most of the Bible is made up of narratives or, or stories. God and his, his purposes has chosen to reveal himself, who he is, his character, his purposes, his existence, and through, it, through the format of story. But also, as we're going to see, um, is that it's through the stories of Scripture that we not only find out who, who God is, but we find out who, who we are. Like you probably know this already about stories through Netflix or, or Disney or, or reading, is that stories, they allow us to place ourselves in the narrative. Stories are a way of, of, of attaching or our, our, our catching or capturing our attention holistically, our mind and our body and our soul. Stories have a, have a way of kind of, of, of bringing down our guard in intrigue, listening to stories feels a lot safer than listening to, to direct discourse telling us what to think or to do or what to feel. And so today we're going to start at the very, very beginning of the Bible. Today we're going to be looking at the first story really in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. We're going to spend uh, two weeks and a couple of weeks looking at the courageous Esther. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in the book of Esther. We're going to spend two weeks looking at that ancient romance uh, in the book of Ruth. And um, we're going to spend uh, a week looking at King David and his son who was born through an act of adultery. We're going to hear about the story of, of Job who literally lost everything that he loved and held dear. And it's, it's our hope this summer as you engage this and you engage in coming to church and listening to these messages that you will not only glean and grow through the Sunday sermons but you will be reminded of, of just the, the richness and the depth in God's word and the power of God's word and if you're, you're a season where, in a season where God's word is maybe um, feeling somewhat dry to you, our, our hope is that you'll be reminded this summer, you'll be reinvigorated this summer to delve deeply into God's word and experience Christ there. Or maybe you've never really even committed yourself to studying the Bible or, or regular even reading the Bible. Maybe this summer that will, will change as you engage these great stories throughout the Bible. So that's all that we invite you into this summer to listen knowing that it's through Scripture that Christ meets us and leads us and guides us, comforts us and, and changes us. Okay, so will we begin? Great stories? Oh goodness, I thought I'd said something wrong. Okay, we'll try that again. We're going to begin great stories. There we go. Push back the slides. Let's go. Today, uh, like I said, we're going to begin at the beginning. Um, what particularly the first three chapters of the Bible do, particularly uniquely and particularly well, is they explain us to, to us, which is necessary. The first three chapters of, of Genesis, they offer this explanation that explains humanity, who we are. When we look around the world, all that, that, that is, it becomes clear pretty quickly that there's something distinct about people. It, it means something distinct to, to, to be human rather than a plant or a, or a tree or an animal. 
Um, this is true in a lot of different ways, but one area of distinction is that we have a level of emotional complexity, a, le a level of inner consciousness that is not found anywhere else in, in creation. There, there used to be a, a show in the UK, I don't know if it, if it was in the US, I don't know if it came from the US, maybe it, 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 it started here, but it was called How to Look Good Naked. Has anybody seen that show? That was just a UK thing. Luke? Any recollection? Just me? Okay, okay. Just me. Now, I was not an avid watcher of this show. Take from that the word avid, what you will. Um, but I do know that the show, what they did, or what they always did, was the host would, would try and get someone to, to stand in front of the mirror and look at themselves with no clothes on. And it was always someone that couldn't do it. And, and the premise of the show was to take this individual on a journey where they could not only look, but they could feel good about what they saw. As humans, our, our inner consciousness or our awareness of the world around us and the ability to, to, to ponder our place in the world is often experienced not as simply consciousness, but self-consciousness. To be self-conscious infers that we have an awareness that we find ourselves through the eyes of others. To be self-conscious is in some sense to put eyes on ourselves. To feel what we feel others are feeling when they look at us. We're conscious of our image. We're, we're conscious of how we look. We are conscious of the identity that we project to the world, we are conscious of whether we like what we see or whether we wish we were able to see something else. Our bodies can be a source of great discomfort to us when we, when we feel the identity that we want doesn't match the body that we have. And that, that, that could be for, for many reasons. Maybe we're, we're getting older and maybe the identity of an athlete is becoming harder to project. Maybe we used to feel a particular confidence when we walked into a room and it seems that that season may be passing or we're struggling to hold on to it. Or maybe there was an event in your life that has left your body not working as you know it should or you wish that it could. Or maybe there is a particular feature about yourself that we have always wished that we, we could change. Or maybe it's not just a feature. Maybe for some of us, we look at our entire body and feel that there has been a mix-up. And I don't know the source of every feeling that we have about our bodies, especially when it comes to gender and sexuality, but that the Bible does speak to what it means to be human. And we are all that. And key to the passage that we're about to look at and read today is our bodies and the only human desire to, to cover them and to alter how our bodies are seen and projected to the world. Our passage today is about how feeling discomfort with the bodies that we have is directly linked to the feeling that there are eyes on us. That there are eyes on us. So let's read our passage. We're in Genesis chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 13. Genesis chapter 3, just a page into your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 to 13. And it reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you give to me with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. God, we come before you, God, as we always come before your word, God, with, with, with humility and dependency on your spirit to, to speak. So God, we just invite you this morning to speak into our lives, into our hearts. God, we ask you, God, to come and invade this room. God, we don't want to come and just play church. God, we want to experience your presence. We want to experience the power of your word transforming us and speaking with clarity into our hearts and our lives, God. So would you do that today, God? God, if our minds feel foggy and cloudy and tired, God, I pray that you will either use that or work through that. God, maybe just fall at your feet needing you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we started... Uh, reading today in, in chapter 3, verse 1, but one thing we, we need to be aware of a lot, actually, in studying the Bible is that when, when the ancient Hebrew scriptures were written, they weren't written with, with chapters and verses included. The, the text just flowed together with the structure being revealed by the kind of flow of the narrative rather than any kind of clinical chapters and, and verses. It wasn't actually until the 14th or 15th century that chapters and verses were added into the Bible. In the beginning of, of chapter 3 of Genesis is one of the places that we actually need to, to know this and remember this because the, the chapter break between chapter 2 and chapter 3 goes straight through two sentences that were meant to be together or read together. Chapter 2 verse 25 reads, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then the next sentence in chapter 3, verse 1, where we started reading, reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And in our English translations of the Hebrew, we, we cannot see the link between these two verses. And you're probably like, yeah, this actually seems like a really good time to put a chapter break. But in the Hebrew, the word that we see translated as naked in verse 25 has basically the identical pronunciation to the word crafty in verse 1. In fact, they, they both come from the very same linguistic root. To be naked is to be revealed, and to be crafty or cunning or clever is to be one with the ability to reveal what is true and wise. Both naked and crafty, not only do they share the same pronunciation in Hebrew, but they also share the same idea of revealing, the idea of revelation. And so what's going on here? Well, first we need to understand what it means that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Well, first we, yeah, need to understand what that means that they were naked and unashamed. 
If we were going to go back and read Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we would read about the, the creation of the world. And every time after God made the sky and God made the land or the animals, he, he paused, some of you will know this, and he said what, that what he had made was good. And not just good as in good but not great. No, good as in innately good as it should be. Whole, perfect, complete, untainted, unblemished. And this was true not just of the universe as a whole but particularly true of the first people, Adam and Eve. In fact, it was only after creating humanity that God paused and said, after everything that he'd made was not just good, but now is very good. Adam and Eve were very innately whole, very innately complete. And whether you're here and you're, you're religious this morning or you're not, each of us know that this feeling is no longer the true human experience. Whether we seek to live by the Ten Commandments or we live by the Five Pillars of Islam or we simply seek to live by our own standard of living well, we all feel at our own endeavor. There is a wholeness to being human that's been lost. But for Adam and Eve, this was not yet the case. When we get to chapter 2, verse 25, their being naked and unashamed was a physical expression of their sense of being whole. They were living entirely open, entirely vulnerable. Nothing in their lives was hidden. They had no concept of feeling the need to hide any part of themselves. They had total comfort and acceptance of who they were in their own skin. There was nothing of their physical bodies or nothing that they were self-conscious of that they felt any sense of shame around. But also they were entirely vulnerable towards one another and with God. He knew them fully, mind, heart, body, soul. God peered into every crevice of their being, and to them this was nothing but the delight of being loved. In the knowing, they knew each other fully, and in the knowing, there was nothing not to love. That's the, the meaning of being naked and unashamed. Then in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, a serpent comes along that was more crafty than any beast of the field. And something worth noting is that the snake is, is, is naked too. Snakes, they don't have any fur, they don't have any hair. And as we've already noted, the word crafty sounds just like naked in the Hebrew. What it seems to be hinting at here is that the serpent was disguised as something whole, as something vulnerable, open and good, naked and known. Just as Adam and Eve were fully revealed, the serpent comes as one not only revealed, but as the one who reveals further the naked maker. And this sounds great, especially in Eden. In a world that, that it is perfect and very innately good, revelation of further knowledge can surely only be a discovery of more that is innately whole and innately complete. Isn't this what we want too? Knowledge? Is able to look at what we, we don't know and know? It's able to make full sense of our lives and our experiences, our pain and our hurt and our humanity, answers for why our lives are this way. Why did it have to happen the way that it did? Why me? Hey, if, if someone wants to offer some insights, so the serpent, this revealer of revelation, says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? He says to Eve, did I, did I hear it right? Actually, did you hear it right? Did God actually say you aren't allowed to eat from any of the trees in the garden? 
And Eve is, is about to clarify and say, no, God didn't say that exactly. But we note here that even in the serpent's question is a kind of questioning that would have been new, a new way of thinking to Eve, a new revelation in and of itself. What would have been new to Eve here was the questioning of whether what God said was actually right or actually good or actually true. So Eve responds and she clarifies in verse 2, no, we, we can eat from the fruit of the trees, but God did say this. He said, we shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it lest we die. Eve tells the serpent they could in fact eat from all the trees in the garden, but there was one from which they couldn't or they would die. And the serpent's response quickly in verse 4, you won't die. God just knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. The serpent hooks Eve into eating from the tree by the lure of what the tree represents. The tree represents knowledge, knowledge that is God's alone. In chapter 2, verse 17, the tree is described as the tree of good and evil. Let me explain this journey with me here for a few minutes. What is meant by the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil and why is this and why this knowledge was so appealing to Eve? Why was that? Our sin and rebellion from God is directly linked to desire that we have for knowledge. And the knowledge we desire or, or claim to already have is the knowledge required to determine the rules as to what is good and what is evil. Our rebellion from God is the result of our inflated egos that say, I, within myself, can wield the knowledge of how the universe should be. You see, there is a just isness about our world. That can be hard for us to, to accept, yes, in the, the realm of what is right and what is wrong, but there is also a just isness beyond morality. Our natural world is governed by laws that just are. And one of the really obvious things this whole narrative points out that I think is fascinating is that Adam and Eve, even prior to the fall, they didn't know everything. Before sin, in a world of perfect wholeness and perfect completion and perfection, for Adam and Eve, there was still the realm of the unknown. There was a just isness about the world that it was a joy to accept. When Adam was naming the animals and an elephant and a giraffe walked along and then came along a hippo, well, well, well there they are. When Eve watched the sunrise on one side of the horizon and followed it across the side sky to the other side, there it goes again. When Adam looked at his, his two arms and his ten fingers and wondered why he didn't have three arms and the neck of a giraffe, well, there we have it. Can you, can you imagine Adam and Eve walking through our world with a posture of wonder and awe towards this world as it is? Not based on a knowledge of everything, but acceptance, receiving the just-isness just of it all. In a few verses, in verse 8, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. 
And what is referred to here is the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, one of, one of friendship, one of which they, they walked together. And as we see, they walked and they talked together. And what's a pretty good guess, what is a pretty good guess of what they, they talked about? God, why did, you, why did you make a tree like that? Why did you, why did you make butterflies? Why did you make a hippo? Do you think that looks weird or is that just us? What were you thinking when you made the moon reflect the sun? Was, was two suns ever an option? God, why did you make Adam like that and why did you make me like this? Church, what I want you to see is that the, the, the just isness of our world is the knowledge of God. The just isness of our world is the knowledge of God. He is the determiner of our natural world and the laws that govern it and the creations that roam it. And he is the determiner of moral law, the determiner of what is right and what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. But hear this, Adam and Eve's acceptance of the world as it is was not an acceptance that was based on just getting comfortable with ignorance or acceptance based upon just having no good questions or or feeling that there are none. No, there are millions of questions that this world begs of us. But Adam and Eve's acceptance of the knowledge they did not know nor needed to know was based upon trust. It was based upon a friendship, a relationship with the one that did know. Adam and Eve's acceptance of the knowledge they did not know was based upon trust in a relationship with the one who did know. A relationship of love, a relationship of faith, a relationship that knows God has his place and we have ours. A relationship enacted, taking walks together, a relationship grown over many long conversations seeking to understand God's will and his ways and his likeness. And so when the serpent lured Adam and Eve, it was not simply to to break a rule, but to break with a relationship. It was to commit an act of betrayal, to break trust. You know, you can know the knowledge to determine the world just as you would like it. What is right and what is wrong and, and you may know, may you may, may functionally be God and you won't even need to take those long meandering walks with God. You know you can be independent of him and here's the thing, your life will be better. And it was all a lie. In verse 7 of chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve ate from the tree, it says, then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. The serpent, the naked maker, the revealer of revelation had stripped them of their ability to look down and like what they saw. Not just physically, but inwardly, holistically. The betrayers felt their own betrayal. Their eyes were open to the knowledge of their own capacity for evil. And so when before they were open and vulnerable and find being seen to their core as nothing but a joy, now they move to hide. First, Adam and Eve hide from each other. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves from one another. The eyes of Adam was too much for Eve. Too much for Eve. The eyes of Eve left Adam feeling too bare. And then in verse 8 it says, and this was great timing, verse 8 says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. They've already hid themselves from each other. Sin breaks and shatters the openness and the vulnerability between us and relationships. But now God comes to them and what do they do? 
They hide themselves for the second time, this time among the trees. God calls out, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve are afraid because they know they have been tricked and they know God has said the consequence of their sin will be death and it would be nice if you will say that they didn't need to be afraid, but they did. And this is, this is hard for us 21st century Westerners. This is probably the hardest knowledge of the just isness of our world, that our betrayal of God, that our rebellion of God as a state of being that we are all born into, the state of rebellion places us in a position worthy of God's just and righteous wrath. We are deserving of punishment. It is actually Jesus himself who speaks clearly and starkly in the New Testament about this, that, that our state of rebellion from God has placed us on a path leading to total separation from God. Right now, our, our lives, they exist with a strong degree of, of common grace allowing us to exist in our sin, but still able to accept the gift of this world and accept the gift of God's free grace. But there, there is a place to come for those that continue in the rebellion from God that Jesus says is both awful and eternal and truly a place of giving us the full rebellion that, that God, from God that our sinful selves desire. And so what do we do with this? What do you do with hell? Should, should we preach about it more? Likely? Should we tell people about it more? Probably. One thing is we have to be careful we don't once again repeat the mistake of Adam and Eve and say, if we had the knowledge of God, I would do it different, I would do it better. I also think this, and this just helps me, so take it for what you will, I think we both on one hand think to little of God. I think we, we struggle to grasp the gravity of what it means to reject him and belittle him time and time again, day after day, week after week, rebelling against him. But I also think on the other hand, in a sense, we think too little of ourselves. Yes, we, we have an ego so large that we believe we have the ability to determine the rules of the universe, but then after thinking so much of ourselves, we surprisingly believe this wonder of human consciousness just snuffs out when we die. Psalm 8 verse 5 reads, Speaking about humanity, you have made them little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. The, the message translates this verse as, Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods. Bright with Eden's dawn light. We think too little of ourselves if we think that the fallout from our rebellion isn't catastrophic in result. We think too little of ourselves if we think this one life we have been given doesn't bear the weight of eternal consequence. There is maybe no greater way to say that our lives matter than to say what we do with our lives will determine our eternities. And yet with all of that, what we're going to see throughout this summer in every great story in scripture is that yes the bible tells us the problem of humanity 
It tells us the predicament that we are in, but that is not as a whole what the Bible is about. The story of Scripture as a whole is not about the problem, but about the solution. Otherwise, Genesis chapter 3 would be the end of the story, and the Bible and the story of humanity would be about two pages long. And so when does the story of the Bible become the story of a solution rather than the story of a problem? The Bible turns from the story of a problem to the story of a solution right in our passage in verse 8 when God still turns up for that walk. And we ask or realize that do we, do we think that he didn't already know what had happened? Do we, do we think he, he needed to come and, and interview Adam and Eve? Okay, so first, where are you? And how did you find out that you got no clothes on? He already knew. He, he, he already knew that he'd betray, been betrayed. He, he already knew that, they'd been, that he'd been lied to and that death was the consequence of their sin and yet he, he still shows up to walk with them and to talk with them. And what does he, he do in verse 21? He, he makes for them garments and he, he clothes them. As soon as Adam and Eve rebelled from God and desired their own independence rather than relationship with God, they looked down and recognized what they had done. Yes, they, they were experiencing their sin, but some of what they saw was just the beginning of the brokenness that would be brought into the world, the shame of being tricked and lied to. For the first time they looked down, they didn't like what they saw. For the first time, they, they bore inward and outward holistic embarrassment. Their bodies didn't project the identity that they wanted to have. Their bodies symbolized an identity that was lost. There were parts of themselves that they wished were different or could be the way that they had been before. For the first time, there was a just isness about the world they had to accept that didn't feel good. And for the first time, to be conscious was to be self-conscious. To walk into the, the room limping. To, to watch your body changing. To feel it's, it's not your own or never has been. And into humanity's first self-conscious moment, what does God arrive doing? The very thing they wished he wouldn't do. He comes looking for them. Just when Adam and Eve thought they had to hide, God comes to look. Before he clothes them, he looks at them. Before he casts them out of the garden, he looks at them. And he puts his eyes on them. And you may be like Adam and Eve, you think that is the last place that you want to ever find yourself standing naked before God. Run for cover. Entirely open and vulnerable. Every, every crevice of your being laid bare after, after what I've done or with the feelings I have about myself. There's no way I'm letting God see me. There's no way he wants to see me. There's no way he's looking for me. Unless I'm clothed, 
Don't I need to, 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 to wear something else? Don't I need to dress a little more befitting? Don't I need to fix up and redo some things about myself? Church, there, there is nowhere to run. Living under the eyes of God is what it means to be human. It's, it's, it's where we exist. It's part of what just is. It's where we're all at. We're all already naked. Even if we're wearing fig leaves in a forest. But what we, we celebrate as a church week in and week out is that despite the gravity of our sin and the rebellion of our stories, God still comes looking. In fact, he, he's never stopped looking. His eyes are to be feared. They are not safe, but his eyes on you are grace. They are mercy. His eyes on you are love. He looks into every crevice of our being, and while we are wincing, his love is unflinching. There is nothing he has not seen. There is nothing he does not know, and there is nothing that makes you too complicated. There is nothing that makes him think that you're too far gone. It was on the cross that the wrath of God and the love of God came to be reconciled. The blood of Jesus poured out due to our punishment is the balm that is our healing. Jesus looked at the crowds with compassion and gave himself to be beaten and stripped and hung on the hell of the cross to die the death that we deserve so that in our place he'd go and so we could be free. The eyes of God's wrath bore through the body of Christ so that on us he could look with full and accepting and eternal love so that we could be clothed in a new identity decided not in our independence but an identity given that we were born for to be the sons and the daughters of God. Before he clothed them, he looked at them. Jesus looks at each of us today with those same eyes of compassion and they are eyes that beckon us to come to him and not to run for him. If you give your life to Jesus today, this is what I can't promise you, that you'll know everything. That every question that you have will be answered anytime soon or that you will know all the whys to your story, but I do know there is one that does know. He has knowledge that is his own to have. He is the great I am, which means he is the one that just is. But as you walk with him, as you discover his character and his will and his ways, I can promise you, you will have something far better than knowledge. You will have a friend. You will be fully known and you will be fully loved. I want to invite you today, if, you, if the Lord is working in your heart, if you have something even just you want prayed for, talked through, discussed, or someone to listen, we're going to have our deacons now during our final song in the four corners of our auditorium, and, and would you come to them, would you come up even front to the elders of the end, and we would love to pray with you and to talk with you and continue to point you to the love of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we... Thank you that you revealed yourself to us. We thank you that as we begin reading uh, scripture, God, that you reveal ourselves to us, who we are. You tell us our own story, that we can enter into it. We thank you that it is a story of grace and forgiveness that is available to all. 
God, I pray that today, God, that you'll be at work through the weakness of this message, that your spirit will be moving in this room, drawing people to yourself. God, we invite you now into our lives, into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.